Okay. Three, two, one. Hello there. You're listening to The Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to be talking about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. And also on this episode, we're doing something a little new. We're going to bring in a guest to do a flick pick where we will watch a film that Dylan and I most likely haven't seen. In this case, we haven't seen At Eternity's Gate. And our guest today, fellow filmmaker, our friend, and also a little bit of a painter, Ross Widener. Hi, my name is Ross Widener. My pronouns are he, him. Uh, Super excited to be here. Yeah, thank you. Your debut on the show. Yes, so excited. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. We're glad to finally have you on here and hopefully the first of many appearances. Would love that. go ahead and talk about some news out of star wars lucasfilm we have new announcements there are three new films that have just been released as part of their like star wars celebration that was going on in london so have you both of you have you seen what these are yet i've, I've seen glimpses of the ray one on instagram okay. I've seen like a snippet of the Ahsoka trailer, but it was like very much in passing. It was like, oh, I love that character. Right, right. Yeah, Ahsoka gonna be on a Disney Plus show. But yeah, they released that trailer, I think, maybe part of the celebration too, or I guess a couple days ago. Um, but yeah, as part of the like movie announcements, they are gonna have a Ray project coming up, um, which would be set 15 years after the events of Rise of Skywalker. They're also going to have Dave Filoni, of course, creator of the Clone Wars show, and then is like the helm helming the Mandalorian stuff and all those other Disney Plus shows. He'll be directing a future film. We don't know what he's going to focus on yet, but most likely he's going to incorporate some of those characters that he's created, which include Ahsoka. So maybe she'll be on the big screen. And then the other one is James Mangold, who of course did Logan has Indiana Jones' Dial of Destiny coming up. He will be getting his own film that will focus on the discovery of the Force 25,000 years before the events of A New Hope. And he's describing it as the Ten Commandments of Star Wars. Interesting. So of these three films that have been announced, which one are you most excited to see? That Ten Commandments one seems really interesting. I feel like just because it's such a different topic than what Star Wars is covering these days and just like so separated from like the Skywalker lineage and, you know, even I feel like even projects that have come out recently that they're like, oh, it's not connected to the main story anymore. It still, you know, finds a way to come back around to it. So Mm -hmm. I think like completely breaking that mold and just kind of showing how things started could be really interesting. I agree, actually. I, I'm very interested in seeing like the philosophical discussions of Star Wars get brought back into this universe 
and having that sort of debate of what is the force and how was it discovered? What does it mean? Things like that. I'm interested in seeing how they change it or develop it or how that will affect how I view Star Wars, things like that. And also James Mangold is cool. <laughs> he does have a good track record. Yeah, I agree. That one is definitely the one that appeals to me the most. I sort of rolled my eyes when I heard the announcements because I was like, okay, yet another <laughs> slew of Star Wars films getting announced. How many of these are never going to see the light of day? Yeah. I think we're up to like 10, like it's got to be do- double digits now of the amount of yeah. Star Wars films that have been announced. The wow. Ryan Johnson trilogy, the <laughs> yeah. the Game of Thrones creators trilogy, the, mm-hmm. uh, what is it? The who who Patty Jenkins's Rogue Squadron got canceled. The Taita Watiki trilogy got canceled. Mm-hmm. For the movie he was going to do. I mean, it's it's. it's well, insane. I don't think that's canceled yeah. yet. It's still technically in the works. But there's that in one in the works. Sean Levy <laughs> yeah. also has one. There's like the Lindelof person was writing one. I don't know if one of these is what he was supposed to be working on. But yeah, there have been so many. So we'll see if these are actually going to come to fruition. But. Yeah, the Ten Commandments in the Star Wars universe, the discovery of the Force, that does sound really cool, to be honest. And yet yeah. it's split from everything we know about the Star Wars universe. Like they've just been still mining this time period in between the Empire and uh, the like, the fall of the Empire to the sequels. So it'll be nice to get a change of pace, get a different time period in there. As for the ray centered one, how are you guys feeling about that? Mid. Mid. <laughs> I'm, I'm like optimistic, just barely <laughs> optimistic. Like I feel, I feel like Ray. She gets a bad rep, you know. Her character arc is not incredible within that last film. Um. So I'm interested to see if there's like a redemption there or what we can do to really like bring her back and kind of allow her focus to be a little bit more like concentrated into something that's meaningful for her and give her like a better, like a better ending if, if, you know, this is her last film. Right. Which I'm sure it wouldn't be like Disney (laughs) would want it to start another like Ray focused trilogy, mm-hmm. but that would, that's where my concern is coming in is I like the character Ray. I like Daisy Ridley. I do want to see those like sequel characters come back in some shape or form, but I think it's too soon right now. And it's also very strange that they're going to have it focused on Ray, but then that leaves the question of where's Poe, where's Finn, where's Chewbacca or 2D2, C3BO, like all these other characters if this is the continuation in a way of the Skywalker story, because at the end of it, she says, Oh, I'm a Skywalker. So you've already made that choice. So now she's like, according to her, at least she's embodying the Skywalkers and carrying on that legacy. If we have it be just her and not any of those other characters that were also part of that saga, it feels like we're just no longer going to officially have the main line episode 10 next installment in the saga which i think business-wise again for them and disney i don't know why you'd make that choice because even though like solo a star wars story and rogue one i like both those films i think they're good especially rogue one but Mm -hmm. i mean they're not the saga right they're not the star wars films you think of when you think star wars if you're not Mm -hmm. gonna have 
that next installment, but you're still going to use one of the characters who, again, she was the main character of the sequel trilogy. Yeah. So it's like now you're going to have her come back, but not anyone else. It's not going to be episode 10. It seems really weird that they would do that because then you sort of lose your chance at having episode 10 and making it a big event and the big return of Star Wars. So I think it's too soon. And I think the way they're doing it is probably going to shoot themselves yeah. in the foot because then you don't have the big episode 10 whenever you do want to bring everyone back together, which certainly they would want. It doesn't to. feel like an episode 10. It feels more like it should be like a, a, one of those shitty miniseries they do, like the Obi-Wan Kenobi one. Right? <laughs> like when you listen to it and it's like Ray developing the Jedi Order 15 years after uh, mm -hmm. Rise of Skywalker, you think, oh, it's actually 15 years later in our real time. And it's right. like, uh, uh, what's it called? It's like an actual show, like a mini series they do, and then they do it wrong or something, like 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 Kenobi. Like that's that's what I picture when I hear. I don't hear it as like a movie that's coming out within the next few years, so that she's not actually fifteen years older. She's coming back very quickly. It just seems odd. It seems odd to me. I'd agree that. Mm -hmm. So skip pass. Not <laughs> you skipping that. I mean, I'll oh, watch okay. it, of course, but again, it just seems. Like, they're going in the wrong direction there. And they definitely should have waited. Like, you're going to have it set 15 years after. Yeah. Like, if that's what you want to do, you want to have, like, the time jump and have a more mature, older Ray or whatever it is. Wait. Just <laughs> allow that time to pass. Like, yeah. Yeah. Let a new generation of kids show up, right? So that they'll be interested in that Star Wars. Let the kids that grew up on the sequel trilogy have all that nostalgia for the sequels. <laughs> like, we all do for the prequels, even though they're not great they're not the best like we do have a soft spot in our heart let that nah, develop good. i think revenge of the sith is legitimately good but those other two <laughs> i think they're, they're all good in their own way they're running on nostalgia but the let that happen for the sequel trilogy so then and then again let us not see ray or uh, poe or finn for a decade and then boom have them all come back that's what they should be doing but uh, yeah i yeah. think they're they're blowing their load way too early on this one Ew. And they also should have done Knights of the Old Republic. Yeah, well, they're never going to do that. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> but they should. I don't know why they're not. It's just it'd be because they're easy. never going to do it'd it. It'd be so good. But because they're never going to do it. Alas, they so can't sad. make great decisions. Yeah, no, they're never going to do it. Sorry. In other news, Shrek Five officially announced with the original <laughs> cast returning. Way more exciting than those Star Wars yes! movies because we know this is actually going to happen, and it's awesome. Who's not pumped for Strike 5? Nobody. That's who. <laughs> this is going to be epic. Did you watch Puss in Boots yet? No, I need to. Bro. Ooh, God. It's so good. It's Everybody so keeps saying it, and good. I keep not finding it anywhere. <laughs> on Peacock. <laughs> is it on yeah. Peacock? Or actually, it may still be on like PVOD. Well, maybe I'll watch it Because that thing is making money. Because it's good, and so people wanted to go out and pay for it. But at some point soon, it'll be on Peacock, I'm sure. I do um, really want to see it. But yeah, it gave a tease, and finally they have officially announced that Shrek 5 is coming. And hopefully it'll be as high quality as Puss in Boots. That would be fantastic. And if it that is, awesome. that's going to make gangbusters. It's going to be huge. Mm -hmm. Having everyone back as well, I think, is such a strong move. Just really have a like a get the gang back together movie. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. I do think it's interesting how we have a Shrek 5 after shrek for you know the final chapter forever after yeah. um it's <laughs> kind of silly with toy story though so silly but i hope it'll be good i have high hopes yeah 
That's true. And I'm game. I, I will say, like, Toy Story did pull off undoing a great ending in Toy Story 3. We'll see if they can do it again in Toy Story 5. <laughs> pull, like, they can. The There's no fucking way. I don't believe it, but they did it before. So it's been Could you imagine? Could you imagine? They can't. What if Woody just dies in the end? <laughs> Like, like, so like gonna the, the soul so that embodies the toy exits, and now he's just Ooh. a toy. I would love like a philosophical chapter of Toy Story where they really like consider what it means yeah. to be a toy. And yeah, there's a villain who can happens, remove you know? their soul, and they become an object. <laughs> they just become Jesus. a simple object that's oh used God. for playing. But in the wow. end, isn't that really what they're supposed to be? So then they all decide to leave their bodies and just become oh. regular toys. <laughs> wow. But then where did dark? It so all the toys Crazy. kill themselves. Oh my god! <laughs> where does a toy's soul go after it leaves? It's and then that ties into Soul, the movie. Mm. <laughs> soul two. <laughs> soul two. Woody cameo. Oh my god! So there we go. Strike five. I'm sure <laughs> they'll be hoping to pull the Pixar Toy Story four method of undoing a great ending. Well, it wasn't. We'll see. I don't think it was as great as the Toy Story three ending. But it is exciting. Something great to look forward to. Something not really to look forward to. Another live-action remake of a Disney film. Is it one of the old classics? Are they going back in the vault and finding something that they can modernize and bring to life in our new Atlantis, era? bro? When are they? When are they gonna? Oh my <laughs> Come God. on, Atlantis. when are they gonna make an Atlantis live-action? You can do that because they're actually humans. It'd be awesome. True. Wait, I've seen. Yeah, they should definitely do that. But the whole Tom Holland's Zendaya thing, I've seen that as well. And that oh, would boo. be a great angle for them to bring mm. people in for that. I mean, yeah, sure, it's a moneymaker, but God, I don't really want to see that version. Oh. Every time I go I into one of those and I'm so hopeful that they'll like figure it out, that they'll make it work. And I'm I'm just left with like such a bitter taste after each one of them for like different reasons. And I yeah. Oh, it makes me so sad. I really want to love those. And I want to, like, have the passion that I have for, like, mm-hmm. the classics. But just yeah. so, it just feels wrong. It just doesn't work. Well, you're probably going to hate this one because it's Moana. Ah. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Why? That movie, like, just, just came, came out. Yeah. Exactly. That's what's We're gonna, How can you do this? We're going to get to a point where they're going to drop an animated movie. And then the next year, the live action remake is going to come out. Like they're gonna be in po- pre-production for the live action when when the animation's still in post-production. Like it's a bad idea. It is so bad, so absurd. But yeah, this is not gonna stop. They're gonna keep doing it, and then they're just gonna <laughs> pull. Yeah, like the they keep oh, making what? so much goddamn money off of them. They do it's crazy, and this one will probably make a lot of money as well because I'm sure The Rock is gonna. Yeah, this movie's it. so recent that The Rock is gonna play him again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Isn't uh, Ali gonna play Moana again? Like the original voice actress for Moana? She probably could too. Because she's nice. crazy. What's the point? What's the point then? What's the point? <laughs> it's not a new take. You're just doing shot for shot. What's the point? What's the point? You get to see the giant crab, but he's like horrifying this time. God, that would actually be kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> he convinced himself. It's nice... it's just the crab from uh, the Little Mermaid live action, but giant. That hideous looking crab. <laughs> but he's not like any, he's not any like better rendered. So it's just yeah, a no. terrible like, <laughs> like polygon crab that's like yeah. 
neon this time. Perfect. That's what they should do. That's that would put me in a seat. <laughs> yeah, go. that's absurd. When Ryan, you will start doing uh, Pixar live action remakes. Ooh, Toy Story I, I think action. Pixar is fighting them off on that. Pixar, please hold the gate. The only one that I think would work well is Wally, because it's it's already like, like you would have to CGI the whole world, and at that point you're just making another animated movie, but re- realistic animation instead of cartoon animation. And I think you can pull that off. And then big fat people, and like I, I think it'd be fine. But <laughs> yeah. but everything else, why why no, why Toy Story? Be... No. Toy Story would be horrifying. That would be horrifying, but even the Wally thing, no, there's no way because there, there are the robots. But yeah, there are a lot of human people that are there as well. So maybe Up, you could do Up because it's just a human story. Yeah, but again, all of them would be horrible ideas, and hopefully Pixar that, is definitely that, uh, yeah, holding their ground. Yeah, if you do Up, then you have to have a talking dog, and anytime you do a talking dog in in live action, it just doesn't just go doesn't well. Work. Just doesn't work. Nah. No, that's why Air Buddies is failing. It's a failing business. (laughs) Air Bud, he didn't talk in that movie. He just played ball and he he scored and he owned. He won. Yeah, and he won. And then these Air Buddies movies are making him talk and it's just flopping. Mm -hmm. Not doing as good as Air Bud. Are they still making those movies? That's crazy. I think so. Space Buddies. There's no way. Uh, Oh, yeah. Let me look up when the last Air Buddies movie came out. All right, let's. Price is right, Ross. What? Let's go for a guess. What do we Ooh, think? I think like 2014. Sounds like a good I, I was stopping thinking right year around for there. I think I'm going to say 2015. I believe the last one was Super Buddies in 2013. Oh, all right. Yeah. Okay. But still, with Airbud coming out in 1997, That's that is crazy. a 15-year tri- series. Airbud, Airbud sequel, Airbud sequel again, Airbud sequel again. Uh, Air Bud spikes back. Air Buddies in 2006. Snow Buddies, Space Buddies, Santa Buddies, Spooky Buddies, Treasure Buddies, and now Super Buddies in 2013. <laughs> That's where they ended it off. They said yeah. no more. Space Buddies and Santa Buddies came out the same year. Wow, was they a big were really year. huge for wow. cinema. Isn't that crazy? God. So we're overdue for a yeah they should make an airbud remake yeah <laughs> what's the next one that. what do you think the next one will be it's a good question i forget all yeah. the ones that they've done so far <laughs> but they did snow they did space. what if what if you went in to watch air the michael jordan movie and then when they do the credits <laughs> it says air and then a bud just pops up and it's just about a dog <laughs> it has nothing to do with michael jordan it's, it's about dogs and Ben Affleck trying to train a dog. It's yeah, the whole trailer was a lie, and they're like, they're like, they're like, we're gonna model a shoe after one player, and it's a dog. <laughs> they go, we could pick the big up and comer Michael Jordan or this dog, and Viola Davis plays the dog's owner. God, exactly. Good. I would pay to see that. <laughs> no wonder it has a ninety nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes. You're kidding, Airbud. There's no way. They revolutionized it. People like yeah. it that much? Look it up, bro. No way. I have the fun need for Airbud was there. It's been 10 years. We needed Airbud. So there you go. Moana, the newest live action Disney remake. Crazy. Crazy. Came indeed. out like literally within the past decade and it's getting a remake. Insanity. It's about time. Let's move, move on to trailer talk. A Ooh. lot of trailers were dropping this past week. 
There was Barbie, there was Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse, Blue Beetle, Indiana Jones, Dial of Destiny just had one drop. So did y'all see any of these? Which ones were you able to catch? I caught that Indiana Jones trailer. Crossing my fingers so hard. Please, I need this to be good. Like, How did you feel from the trailer? Uh, Are your expectations I'm nervous. lowering? Oh, no. I, it's lowering just a little bit, and I'm really nervous about it. I, you know, I grew up on Indiana Jones, and that's, like, probably one of my most fond, like, Spielberg sagas, even though he's not directing this one, is he? I'm like, nope. No, can't James be. Mangold. Oh, nice. Um, just, please, I love Phoebe Waller-Bridge's. <laughs> Hope she's hope she kills it. Hope she slays. Uh, but overall, just nervous. I think it's my my biggest word with that one. I think she is gonna slay Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, but I think it'll be good. I like the trailer. I didn't think it was fantastic or anything, but I thought it was on par in quality as the first trailer. Yeah, I'm just I don't know. I'm kind of sick of the way. Like trailer houses make their trailers nowadays. They just they take an old song and they remix it to the trailer. Yeah, okay. And that's that's every trailer, every Marvel trailer, <laughs> every now Indiana Jones. I'm just kind of tired of it. There's got to be a different way to make trailers now than just remixing an old song and cutting around and throwing in some jokes there. It's just so boilerplate. Mm-hmm. I'd agree. It certainly is. Yeah, I did not catch it yet. I will see it sometime Whoa. soon during a when I make a trip to the theaters. I'm sure see it on the big screen. That's what I'm also doing. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. I chose hmm. not to watch it so I can see Ooh. it up on the big screen Probably because good. how y'all are feeling with like Indiana Jones. That's sort of how I'm feeling with Across the Spider-Verse. Hoping it'll Ooh. be great, but the expectations are slowly coming down which hopefully i think will no, it'll be great work in its favor it'll so, be so that it can it'll surprise be me and amazing no matter me. what it'll be great what it'll about the blue fantastic. beetle trailer ryan did you watch blue beetle since you're such a blue beetle fan i did watch the blue beetle trailer and thoughts on the blue beetle trailer i loved how they were so unique instead of using an old song mm. they used a current song for their trailer yeah. <laughs> no it was very it was a very generic approach to the trailer very much the so. film also seems like it's a very familiar story, right? Yeah. But I do think it has a lot of potential to be fun. Yeah. I think the whole dynamic of the family there, like when he, the scarab got onto him and did the transformation and they were all reacting to it, I thought that was great. And I hope that that's going to shine through in that film. So. Me too. Yeah. Do I think it's going to be groundbreaking and be a fantastic cultural phenomenon? No, at this point, no. But it still has a lot of potential to be fun. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. And last but not least, Ryan, did you watch the Barbie trailer? <laughs> I did watch the Barbie trailer. And thoughts? I think it's good. I don't think it's going to blow me away. I think you're much you're fucking wrong. bigger on Barbie it's than so I It's so good. It's so good. It's going to be amazing. I'm you're so fucking ready. wrong, Ryan. I think it's good, but I don't know. The whole Ken, Barbie Ken, Barbie King. Ken, Come on, like, that's okay. fantastic. The shot where no, she no, takes like, off fantastic. the shoe and it's still oh. the Barbie shoe. That was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. 
incredible but then from there i mean that was like the high point and that was at the very top of the trailer so <laughs> come on i love it looks it. incredible it does look incredible yeah like visually what they're doing was amazing but the story's gonna be the, great it's gonna be so funny you're wrong you're dead wrong i'm not saying it'll be bad i'm just saying i'm not sold on it as much as you are i will bet you five <laughs> whole dollars because we're gonna we're gonna double feed your oppenheimer and barbie i bet you mm -hmm. five whole dollars Absolutely. that both of us will like barbie more <laughs> i bet you five real us dollars five <laughs> that you, you and i will both enjoy barbie more we will go on this show and we will do our barbie and oppenheimer <laughs> episode and we are both going to rate barbie higher than or equal to oppenheimer i guarantee oh, i mean we'll see i'm not going to take the bet i'm not going to do it based oh come on, on. subjective experience <laughs> come on from now. i'm just saying i think i'll like it for sure Take the bet. And I'm not trying to, you know, have a competition between Oppenheimer and Barbie there. I'm just saying. I am. Barbie the trailer. It's not even going to be a competition at this point. Come on. Barbie <laughs> I know you're already like sold. It's like your movie of the year at this point. It's one of your most anticipated, right? Or did, you didn't even actually put it on your anticipated. I'm not sure. I know Oppenheimer wasn't. It's going to be explosive, <laughs> but Barbie's the bomb. <laughs> Come on. Oh my God. Come on. So again, I'll be... I'll be there no matter what. Opening weekend, mm -hmm. double feature, it'll be great. I can't Which wait. One's this first? Gonna be, it's gonna be such a fun day. Ooh, we, we have to figure that now. out. Yeah. What, what do you think would be the move? Which one should be first, and which should be the one that comes after? I feel like Barbie second. I agree. I, I think I'm, Barbie second. I'm definitely gonna watch Barbie second, just as like a like a humanity, you know, boost afterwards. Because <laughs> I know after Oppenheimer, I'm gonna be like, wow, we're we're really something, huh? A and then spiritual... we go straight on into that like plastic pink world of wonder and joy, and it'll bring everything back. Exactly. Yeah, the visual style between each of them that was a big like whiplash. <laughs> I can't yeah, wait. I, like I feel uh, like I feel like watching Oppenheimer first might tire us out, but also I feel like if we watch Barbie first and then follow it with the three hour Oppenheimer, then by the end of it we'll be just drained. Like like we will be nearing the end of Oppenheimer and begging for it to be over. Whereas if we're getting close to the end of Oppenheimer and it is long and draining, we could be like, well, at least we got Barbie next. At least we at get least to go Barbie's see Barbie. Barbie's right there. Barbie's right there. And we can have fun for an hour and a half. I really hope Barbie's also three hours long. I think that'd be hilarious. <laughs> I would Please. Be I think it'd be so, uh, it'd be just so entertaining if it was three hours. And I just really want it to be. I know it's not going to be, but it would be great. <laughs> That'll be a fun day, though. I, I can't wait. To that. We can have a lunch in between. Uh, That'll be a good day or dinner, I guess. Mm -hmm. We should just invite every single person we know. I don't think anybody any will film go. Person in here. What do you mean? <laughs> people would. The film people will go. I meant like our friends that aren't film people. I don't think they'll want to spend seven hours at a theater, in, like That's in true. Waterford. <laughs> hey, they're Waterford. lost though. Yeah, it'll probably be Waterford, but I think it'll be fantastic. Um, but all right, let's move on to our box office breakdown for March thirty first to April second. Dungeons and Dragons. Honor Among Thieves came out on top with $37 million in its debut. Damn. That was high. It was higher than, I think, both of our projections. Well, I think last week we knew what the predictions were, so it was right around oh, was there. It? But, I don't remember. Yeah. Anyway, coming in second was John Wick 4 with $28 million. His Only Son, $5.5 million. Scream 6, $5.3 million. Creed 3 with $5 million. Shazam 2, 4.6 million. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> it's not doing great. Dropped nope. from like two to sixth on the top ten. Not great. Big bummer. 1,001 coming after that, 1.7 million. 65, 1.5 million. 
Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania 1.2. Still there. The Journey, an Andrea Bocelli movie, 1.2 million. Mm -hmm. And now for this upcoming weekend, April 7th to the 9th, our predictions for Easter weekend, which, of course, doesn't have films debuting on the Friday. We had two films release a little earlier in the week, Super Mario Bros., the movie, and Air. So we already know what the like Wednesday and Thursday numbers were. Mario is at 31 million on Wednesday, 26 million on Thursday. God damn. It's a little over both of those amounts. So like its total at this point is just over 58 million. Holy shit. So those are two days before its actual like three day weekend. So they're saying projections are now that for the five day, it can make over 175 million. And it's quite possible that it could crack 200 million in the five day opening week. That's this was crazy. Insane. This was in your box office draft, right, Ryan? Oh, it sure was. I hate you. <laughs> I hate you so much. Have you Will seen you... it yet? I no, I have it. not. You have? I have. I saw it I opening day. Well. <laughs> so you supported it. these numbers. <laughs> yes, I did. I had to. I saw it uh, on like a midnight screening. Mm-hmm. um in 40x oh oh, my gosh. oh lord that was like an earthquake it was insane was that your first 40x or have you done no it's, it was like my third but it's definitely like the most intense experience i've had in a 40x so far really wild. Super mario bros wild that like can i say spoilers is that okay um, uh, no, right refrain. Yeah. Okay. Okay. No spoilers, but there's a good section that just, if you weren't paying attention, you would get whiplash. It is crazy. Interesting. Wow. <laughs> Dylan, you didn't venture into the 4DX Super Mario experience? No, we did a standard theater because it was cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done 4DX. Maybe I missed out on John Wick because John Wick would have been crazy in 4DX. I missed out on Top Gun. I really wanted to see Top Gun on 4DX. Uh, and I just haven't be- seen a movie. Maybe Mission Impossible. Maybe I'll wait and, and my first 4DX will be Mission Impossible because that'll be awesome. I think so too. That'd be cool. Ryan, 4DX, Mission Impossible, you coming with me? I wouldn't be opposed. Hey. That would be nice. All right. So, yeah, Super Mario Bros. Barbie over- 40X, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be fantastic. Ken. The Oppenheimer Barbie 40X <laughs> combo experience. So, yeah, amazing stuff. And we were talking, this could have been the like huge breakout of this year, possibly one of the highest grossing. And it ended up on my roster. I hate you. I hate you so much. Love to see it. Air. Stupid. Matt Damon. Ant-Man. <laughs> uh matt damon ben affleck story about how they got the air jordan shoe it has made five million so far from those two days and it's looking like it'll get another like double digit amount over the three-day weekend so getting close to 20 million not gonna quite get there but a solid performance for that film yeah all right now we can move on to our main topic of discussion which is Julian Schnabel's 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 at Eternity's Gate. It is a movie starring Willem Dafoe, Oscar Isaac, Rupert Friend, Maz Mikkelsen, and a lot of French actors. And it was a flick pick chosen by our guest today, Ross. 
So Ross, why, why was it? Why was this the movie that you wanted to talk about today? This film is one. Anytime people ask me to list like my top three, this one is at least somewhere in that top three, and it's one that I feel people haven't seen just because it's kind of. I don't know. It goes under the radar a lot just because it's a like slower, more like methodical film. But it is one that I feel super, super well that it captures that like element of like being an artist and what it means to like keep going with your work when people don't believe that you are able to do it. Gotcha. Awesome. So yeah, this film is a pretty recent film. It came out in twenty eighteen. And it's from that director, Julian Schnabel, who isn't a frequent filmmaker. This was like his first film in eight years, and he's only made like a handful overall. And he primarily considers himself a painter. But yeah, the film is about Vincent van Gogh and him and his journeys at like the end of his life, basically, as he's still a struggling artist um, trying to make do and go through all of that process and again as you're pointing out like the methodical aspects of painting and creation and trying to survive on that but then also connecting with other people on that so I do think it's a fascinating film in terms of how it speaks to the artist's experience which for me and Dylan obviously lean a lot more towards writing and filmmaking you obviously are in that same camp as well, but mm-hmm. I learned recently actually that you are a really good painter yourself. So I'm sure this resonated a lot more for you on that front as well. So talk a bit about like that experience of just like as a painter, <laughs> like how that came about for you, your journey being a painter and then discovering this film and how it was like seeing that for the first time. <laughs> Really good is a very strong word. Thank you very much. Dude, it was so good. Um, (laughs) You showed like a painting and wasn't it like one that you did in like a short amount of time or something like that? Yeah. I went on a little date with my girlfriend and like painted for two-ish hours and like pulled out a little like two-color fun little work. Um, But whatever. Yeah, and Um, it was awesome. It was amazing. (laughs) So I'd love to see more of your work that you like actually spend time on and dedication to it but um don't sell yourself short that was great thanks well for me i feel like the fact that julian schnabel like is primarily a painter and is more of like an accomplished person within like the art world and having him direct this film and like really show just like van gogh walks through the wilderness until he finds a spot that like he feels connected to and um is able to like you know, slump all of his art material on the ground and just kind of like work from there and like this quick, like kind of frantic pace of painting. Um, Super, super realistic. And just that element of it was, um, it connected to me very well because for me, like I love painting in those short like amounts of time. And when I am painting, like usually it's just like a, like an instinct in the back of my head, like, Oh, I want to paint right now. And I'll paint for like three hours and then, once that three hours is done, it's like that painting is finished, whether it's like completely covered, you know, the canvas is completely covered in paint, or if it's just like a small little thing in some corner of it. Um, So I really connected to that like style of art 
And one of the, I was kind of like reading a little bit about um, what Schnabel was like envisioning with this film. And he's, one of the points that he makes pretty, pretty clearly is that although Van Gogh wasn't like very financially successful within his life and his art, um, in those moments when he is painting and he is experiencing like the world for what it is, he's like happy and joyful. And those are some of the most like joyful moments of his life in those like last couple of years that this film focuses on. Um, and there's like a shot that's kind of silly where um, he like picks up, picks up a handful of dirt and like rubs it on his face <laughs> and just like kind of revels in that moment with nature and just like feels I don't know. You just get this great sense of like connection to the world around him. And I love that about this film that it's, it's kind of melancholy. The plot itself is kind of melancholy, but these feelings of just great joy and expression as an artist is something that I feel like I connect with. And I hope that everyone else, you know, connects with, with their art. Yeah. I think it's, great that you brought up that one shot because i i think that was great like that moment where he's just he's lying down mm. in this like area which is dirt there and then he like smears it over on his face or like lets it fall down onto his face um just yeah that like authentic moment of him just having this impulse to connect with the world around him even further mm. by like making his face become a canvas for the dirt to fall on like it was a fascinating choice but i will say i was also thinking in the back of my mind i was like i hope my boy willem defoe didn't just get dirt in his eyes <laughs> i was looking because he was like oh yeah. as he was trying he to does, open his eyes because he wipes his face and there was a moment where he licks his lips and just eats a piece of dirt oh my god <laughs> reminds <laughs> me of happen. um later on him in the lighthouse when he's like completely buried with dirt just like speaking it's a familiar familiar little moment for him but oh, yeah. I want to know what you guys what you guys thought of the film because I I'm like like a fanatic about this one, but I just want to know like your opinions on it because it's 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 a weird one. Yeah, we can do our initial impressions and then we'll talk through like the rest of the film and important moments, things that stuck okay. out to us, which we can spoil all day long. Um, so yeah, don't be afraid to do that. So we'll do a deep dive into it, but. In terms of initial impressions, I think those moments that you were pinpointing just now of him being in nature or him going through his artistic process and finding those moments of peace and joy in what was otherwise like a very melancholic existence that he had, where obviously he was very troubled and often felt alone and things like that. Like those moments where we're just watching him go through a field for literally like eight, 10 minutes of him just walking through <laughs> with like a piano playing over it. And he's trying to find this best spot to sit down and paint. I was engaged in those moments. It's a very unique film. And we'll talk about a lot of the choices that are made here that make it distinct. Um, but in moments like that, I was like, okay, like this, like the feeling that they are trying to invoke, the connection that they want us, the audience to have with this character of Vincent Van Gogh is working for me um so yeah i think that was great and then anytime and dylan i'm sure knows this as well but anytime mm -hmm. that people are just waxing poetic about art itself or mm -hmm. philosophizing about existence and whatnot 
I'm you always love that. Yeah, I'm always <laughs> plugged in with soccer. <laughs> so Ooh, art, yes, <laughs> just loves it. Mm-hmm. So there are many moments where that's going on, like uh, Willem Dafoe and then Oscar Isaac as they're like on that cliffside and they're talking, and then they take a whiz for a moment, and then they're still talking about like <laughs> the artists they love and starting a revolution, stuff like that. I was very much plugged in. Um, I'd say overall, though, I don't know how much the film beyond those select moments resonated with me in terms of just like the story and the idea of like Vincent Van Gogh, the man and the character and what his like, just to put it in those more obvious storytelling terms, like his arc and Mm -hmm. what we're meant to glean or understand from him as a whole from like this film and this snapshot of this portion of his life. I'm still trying to figure out how well all of that stuff worked for me. But there were those moments for sure when it like leaned heavily into just Van Gogh painting and him like trying to find ways to paint and him expressing his thoughts on how he sees himself as an artist and what he thinks that means um, to him and the world around him. All that stuff worked. But I don't know if the sum of all those parts really delivered for me but i'm interested in dylan how it worked for you uh well unfortunately i have a very similar take as you do ryan uh i'm not as fond of those uh conversations of people being super passionate about art as you are ryan but i can you know take an interest in it and i thought that the discussions that van gogh had with a lot of the people around him were interesting particularly the one with the priest I like the conversation they had and then his him relating to that conversation to a story about Jesus and then trying to bring religion into it. Uh, I liked everything to do with that. And I liked a lot of the uh, conversations he had, the conversation he had towards the end with, um, I don't remember the actor's name, but the guy who was posing for him and he's painting mm-hmm. like the conversation that they have. And then I really like, really, really, really like the scenes where he's just painting. Mm-hmm. Like I could have watched a two hour movie of him just walking <laughs> around painting things to the music and just feeling that. And like, like I thought all of that was incredible and really well done because it made me feel more for his paintings and feel what he felt when he was painting those paintings, which I think is incredible. But in terms of movies that I like, I am interested in films that are able to find balance. And I would not say that this film was able to strike that as strongly as it could have in terms of balancing those like surreal scenes where it feels more like like feeling a piece of music than actually watching a film and then those scenes of dialogue which are so story driven and so philosophically driven i wouldn't say the tone quite matched and i wouldn't say that like either one meshed well enough to drive the plot forward which was in its own way not quite like thought out strongly like i like if you look at the script i don't know what the script would look like right i think it's pretty unsurprising that it seems like the parts that worked the best for us are things directly related to like the painting and Mm -hmm. uh portraying that experience which the director being a painter himself is very Mm -hmm. well versed with but the stuff that yeah it comes into the other duties and responsibilities of being a director and for the project as a whole Mm -hmm. balancing out those tones and finding a way to weave together those like really deep diving moments onto just the process of painting with the narrative itself 
of like what's going on in his life and with the characters around him in between those moments of him painting that didn't seem to work as well yeah i agree but ross since you were such a fanatic as you say about this film talk to us about again your experience with it and then we can start like going through some of the major elements of it but how are you feeling about our sort of lukewarm response to it because <laughs> there are parts we really do love i think both of us yeah uh, i mean i flicked with, i totally but, understand yeah. your viewpoints i don't know i feel like for me the film takes such a strong stance about feeling like an other and like a community that Van Gogh's kind of struggle to connect with people. And like, especially those scenes where he's like in the hospital and his brother comes to visit him and he like begs him to stay, um, works super strongly to convey that theme. Um, I don't know. I feel, I understand your takes. It makes sense. <laughs> uh, I'm just a huge fan. I just love this film. I love the cinematography and just how it's all so hectically handheld in just moments that you feel like certainly don't need to be handheld in some mm -hmm. some points. But just the way that a shot can like shift from like a close up of someone's face down to their hands to see like you know, the emotion that's expressed in their hands and then back over to someone else who's talking just convey such a, like, frantic energy that I feel like Defoe's Van Gogh, like, perfectly connects with. Yeah. And I just love it. I feel like it's just... I like... A great time. Yeah, I like when Schnabel uses, like, earlier dialogue that's been said like a minute or two before and replays it as if it's going on Willem Dafoe's head because I like how that sort of puts us in this state of him going over and, and the effect that the these words that he said and the others have said to him have such an effect on him and how he's like thinking about it and thinking about it and I like that use of it especially so recently in what just happened like they say the line of dialogue and then maybe a minute or a minute and a half later it just plays in the background and then the the scene with it's his brother, I think, where it's like overlaying the images of him and his brother talking and then re-overlaying the dialogue of the conversation to kind of show how much overthinking he's doing and how it's kind of driving him mad in those scenes I really like. But in terms of like the handheld cinematography, I don't know how much that worked for me because at a certain point it, it was it, it was effective up until a point and then became a little over exhaustive and then started to take me out a little bit with some of the camera moves they were doing to go from a wide to a close-up were a little too uh jarring and not practiced intentionally i think or like when he's taking off his boots and then he's about to sketch the boots um i guess after the fact i kind of understood what it was about it was about showing the dimensions of the boots and what he was visioning and so that when we see him painting he see we see what he's clearly seeing in the boots but while I was in the moment watching it, I was just kind of taken aback by it going close in on the boots, then going completely sideways and pulling back, then going close in on his face <laughs> and going completely sideways again. It was just a little bit jarring to watch, and it did take me out of like the feeling I was supposed to be feeling in the film, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think... love. Oh. Sorry, go ahead, Ross. No, you go first. I was going to just add on to that of the whole cinematography thing and the handheld element to it. I think 
what I appreciate about the film the most is the fact that it leans into these bold creative decisions and they all seem mm-hmm. like intentional, right? It does seem like it's all yeah, absolutely. trying to get to that point of like, here's how Van Gogh must have been feeling, like that certain level of franticness or Ross, as you're pointing out, like that struggle to connect that he's experiencing. And so there's always this somewhat jarring, somewhat distancing, like handheld shaky camera so that we're not able to get like a stable view of anything that's going on. And then uh, like that is replicated through uh, the blur that was at the bottom of the screen, which right. I kept, I was like in the very beginning, I was like, what is going on there? Like, is this my TV? Yeah. And then I kept trying to decipher like, what, what is that? Why are they doing it? When does it happen? And I think by the end, so it was like only when it was Van Gogh's perspective, like a point of view shot of like mm-hmm. Van Gogh. So we're seeing through his eyes, but it didn't always happen during those moments where like seeing through his eyes. Cause there were a lot of times where, actors are looking right into the lens and we're i guess supposed to be assuming that like that's van gogh looking at them but on occasion there would be that like strip at the bottom of just like this blur where the top of the frame wasn't blurred so i was also unsure entirely of what that was meant to be getting at did van gogh have some condition where that's like how his vision would be (laughs) is it just to again like emphasize that point of instability or inability Mm -hmm. to like clearly see someone or something or talking about like his distinct view of the world like that's what gets brought up a lot of him being like oh i see the world a certain way and the way i see it is like closest to reality so those choices that they're making like they they all have a purpose they're all working towards something and it's interesting that you have to try and pick your battles and deciphering what do some of these things mean is it like fairly obvious and does it connect with you or does it sort of distance you more than anything like you're bringing up about the boots and the dutch angles and then the completely side view of the boots and uh van gogh so i appreciate a lot of what the film is doing i find it fascinating Mm. yeah but it's one of those things where it's less of like it truly connected with me and i was enjoying it versus from like a distance i'm admiring what it is doing and what it's trying I to agree. accomplish but for me personally it just didn't always work um and click mm-hmm. with me but yeah a lot of interesting things that they were doing in the film yeah, yeah speaking speaking of that like blur at the bottom of the screen um i was reading something from schnabel about it and he he mentioned that that like split diopter, which is essentially what it is, just like an unfocused like diopter yeah. in the shot, mm. um, is like anxiety and just like not being able to see clearly through, like just such intense like you know backlog going on in your head while you're trying to focus on something else. Um, mm-hmm. And when I when I saw it and like for the first time my brain initially went to that being like tears, like tears, like clouding half your eyes as you're mm-hmm. like trying to I fight like more, trying yeah. to fight back what's going on. Um, mm. And I love in some of those shots uh, when the light hits like the grass in a certain way, it creates those like streaks, just like Van Gogh's like paintings. And it's just, I feel like it's such an interesting way to like visually signify like kind of, negative emotion happening. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for the the stuff, was there anything like on what you've read from Schnabel or heard from him about the intentions of the POV shots where it's just him looking at the characters that are looking in the lens? Like we rarely see Willem Dafoe looking directly at the camera, but there are times where that happens. Mm-hmm. Like during the one where he after he cuts off his ear and he's in like the doctor's office or whatever it is, mm. that's like going back and forth between the two of them having their POV shots. But more often than not, it's we see a character that he's talking to looking directly at him right into the lens. Mm. Then we'll cut to a more usual and ordinary uh, shot of just like his face. And he's looking off at, the character but we're not seeing it from that character's view of like him looking straight on at them was there anything that he said about like why i haven't read anything from him about that perspective but from my own understanding of the film it really happens when characters are like questioning why van gogh is doing what he's doing or like Mm. why why he is the way that he is, especially when he's talking with the doctor and there's this like, it almost looks like fish eyed view where the doctor's head is like close, like his forehead is like closer to the camera than his chin. Um, and he's just like gazing directly into the lens and just asking him why, why he's doing everything. And he's trying mm-hmm. to explain his art, but not really like being understood. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it like, kind of like representation sorry it represents like negative views upon him and like the people that he trusts and the people that are around him trying to understand what he what he's going through but ultimately like having their own preconceived notions about him and his condition that's pretty fascinating with with oscar isaac and then um with willem with Rupert Friend, right? He was the one that mm-hmm. played the brother. I'm trying to think back. Did we ever see them having that? Like the POV shot from Pango? Because so. what you're touching on there might be what it is of like that feeling mm-hmm. of intense scrutiny and being like judged or being pried apart basically of these people trying to figure out who you are. Yeah. But the people that are closest to him, right? Gauguin? 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 Whatever oh. his name was. <laughs> and then uh, Theo Gauguin. was the brother. Galgain, yeah, mm-hmm. there you go. Um, and then the brothers, since they are the people that it seems like Van Gogh had the strongest connection with in his life, that never really happened with them, or at least I don't remember mm-hmm. at this point. So maybe that is mm-hmm. what they were going for there. Hmm, that's fascinating. I love the shot where Theo is like holding, I, I spoke about this a little earlier, but where he's holding Van Gogh. Yeah. And um, Theo doesn't look into the camera, he looks like straight past it. And he's just so lost in thought of like what to do in this like silent, really stoic moment. Um, that's like one of my favorite moments in the film. I just love it. Yeah, absolutely. That was great. One thing I wanted to touch on, I guess a couple different scenes. One was the, the woman in the field, which was sort of like the opening that we got. It like started on black, had him narrating something, and then it goes into that scene. And then we cut away from it, and then we come back to it much later in the film. So what was your takeaway from that? Like, what do you think that was 
trying to represent about Van Gogh's experience? I think it really sets the mood for the rest of the film. Just that like, oh, this is a Van Gogh biopic, but not going to be one that's like really skimps over his mental condition and just the way that, Mm -hmm. you know, he kind of like loses sense of himself in these moments that kind of happens throughout the film. Um, And it's so awkward and weird and like, especially because it's handheld and like blurry, it just really disorients you out of like what you're kind of expecting about a movie about painting, Mm -hmm. which I think kind of leads you further in to be curious about like who Vincent is and like why he's asking this woman to like stand still and not move and no stand like this, wait, no, be like this. And then ultimately, you know, later it turns like an altercation that leads him either back to the doctor or back to the asylum. But yeah, super, super interesting little part. And is Dylan, what'd you think of that? Um, I thought it was an interesting way to start the movie. And I think Ross is correct in saying that it's just a, a, a way to set the tone of what you're, you're going to expect for the rest of the film. Because for the rest of the film, I was never confused by any choices they made because they took all the weirdest ones and shoved it into that one scene <laughs> for me to see right in the beginning. And so I'm like, okay, whenever they went back to one of those things, I'm like, I'm not confused. I, I get it. We saw this right away. Uh, but in terms of like it being another part of like the tapestry that is Van Gogh, I think it's, it's like, I guess adding to it in that every kind of scene where he's not just painting is more like a, like a little vignette about him as a character. But I would say it feeds into the problem of those little vignettes aren't tied together quite perfectly to fully capture the man himself. Like it's like a quilt with little holes in between all the little squares where they're not quite sewn perfectly together. But each little vignette that you see is is very well done on their own. Like like the scene where the school children kind of go up to him and he gets frustrated and angry and anxious and just attacks them because they're questioning him and they're questioning mm-hmm. his art. I like that a lot, at, on, like standing on its own, but I don't know how well it ties into like the conversations he has with Gauguin or like the, the conversations he has with his brother, like how well they all weave together to make one solid arc or story for him but all in all i think they work individually right which again that like lack of cohesion amongst Mm -hmm. the vignettes may be part of the intentionality maybe trying to best represent like van gogh's state of mind and yeah how he carried out everything yeah everything feels very intentional it doesn't feel like they're like missing anything yeah it seems like they made the movie they wanted to make which is impressive in its own right for sure. But yeah, I agree that it was a great opening to the film because it definitely raises a lot of questions, definitely sets it apart from other standard biopics. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was effective. Just the choice to return to it later in the film. And then we see more of that and it does grow into more of like an aggressive altercation. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just curious about that choice, which obviously, I mean, I don't think it's like a real historical event that happened, although maybe and apparently it was real that there was like a petition for him not to return to the town. So maybe that is rooted in some truth, but the way that it was just emphasized at the very beginning and then returning to it later on, I thought it was fascinating. And I didn't know if it was touching on again, like the mental illness aspect, like you were saying Ross of them not shying away from depicting that. 
and how I guess maybe that is influencing his inability to connect and to understand like this is a very odd thing for him to be doing and not really being able to adapt to the situation when she clearly gets uncomfortable with it and is yeah like trying to get out of it and yeah he's just trying to focus on like getting this painting and getting the right position so yeah that was um a curious vignette that was included in there one of the vignettes that you were most fond of dylan was mm-hmm. in the asylum when he's having a conversation with the priest yeah i did like this so talk about Maybe what I... what was great about it for you well, first off, just love Mads Mikkelsen. I mean, oh, fantastic. Okay. Okay. Just one of the best actors. Uh, on top of that, I like the conversation they have where uh, he says that he was born to be a painter. It's the only thing he's good at. And then the priest shows him a painting and accuses it of being like unpleasant and ugly. And then he says, like, why would God make me uh, like give me the gift of making things that are ugly. Like, why would he do that? I like that. I just like the philosophical conversation they have more than any other philosophical conversation from before or after into the film. I just think it's the strongest of like this, this figure that is supposed to be there to essentially like therapize him and like cure his mental illness is just making it worse. Cause he's a part of the problem that is just questioning him and questioning him. And he is so steadfast in defending himself and his art. I liked that a lot. I agree. Nice. I did think it was funny, though, as well, when <laughs> the priest was like, hmm, how can I not hurt your feelings? How can I be delicate about this? And he goes, it's unpleasant. And I was like, okay, he found like a, a good word to not really like stick the knife in him. And then he goes, it's ugly <laughs> right after that. <laughs> I was like, oh boy, just like, you could have stopped right there. <laughs> yeah, that too. I was like, man, that was vicious. Yeah. Uh, but Ross, what did you th- think of that conversation? I really... That's probably one of the most interesting conversations in the film as well, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that Van Gogh like describes that um, with his art, he's trying to give his brothers the view of the world that he has. And even though um, like the priest doesn't really like get that and it's just trying to help him, but also not, you know, trying to like guide him away from, art in the path that he's on and right, that which i think is because the way mads Mikkelsen like performed that it does seem like i know he's definitely off put i don't say like afraid or scared or anything but yeah. he's definitely he's unsure of like how to go about this interaction with them mm-hmm. and it did seem like i don't know he thought painting in some way was like detrimental to van gogh and of course van gogh like we know from everything we've seen thus far in the film, like, no, it is, like, essential to his being. He said, yeah, like, he's a born painter, and multiple times he's like, mm. that is, like, how I can be alive, is trying to share my vision and make other mm. people feel alive. Um, mm-hmm. So it was a fascinating yeah. way they set up that conflict of the priest is, mm-hmm. like, yes, trying to help him by getting him away from the art, but, of course, we know for Van Gogh, that's, like, the one thing that would be even more detrimental to him, even though he obviously has these like mental afflictions and whatnot mm-hmm. and a very troubled life so that part of the conversation was pretty fascinating the way they set yeah. that up i like the confusion that the priest has towards like who vincent van gogh is and like it's not quite in a con- like an accusatory way he's just genuinely like he does not understand why he is the way that he is and he's trying to understand 
Like he he asks him he asks about being angry and getting angry and like what he does to not be angry anymore. And, and Van Gogh says, "I just go out and I stare at the grasses or I stare at a branch and like look at the little nooks in the branch and it brings mm-hmm. me." And he says, "Like God is nature and nature is beautiful." And I love that line. Yes, fantastic. Oh. I that love, is a fantastic line. I love when uh, the priest like tells him like, "Oh, I'm the person who decides whether you go back back out or not," mm-hmm. and. Um, Vincent makes this like connection between like Pilate and Jesus yeah. and he's like trying to connect with the priest and like, I feel like the priest, I can't remember exactly, but the priest he, like he shies, says, shies away from that part of that conversation. Yeah. Cause he's saying like in the, in the actual text of the Bible, Pilate was not the person that sent Jesus to the cross. It was the people and Pilate was trying to plead with him not to, mm-hmm. to, to, so that he could find a way to keep Jesus from the cross, but everything Jesus said incriminated him. He's yeah. connecting that and like, uh, I know you want me to say things that will let you set me free so that I don't have to be in this place anymore. But the things that I that is true to me and that I believe in are things that will keep me here. Mm-hmm. Like, like Which is being so brilliant. Yeah. That, 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 that with the, yeah. the thing of him thinking Van Gogh's affliction is the painting and that obsession. Mm-hmm. And so when he's trying to ask him and like steer him away from it, the incriminating part that Van Gogh is going to have is him expressing how much he loves yeah. art his and commitment how essential it is for his art. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. I do I love that scene so much. It is great, yeah. There- I think of the other philosophical scenes, like the other discussions he had, were as like well transitioned into as this scene and well as as, as like as well placed within the movie as the scene, it, it would have worked a little better, but sometimes it felt like I was going from like just cutting from scenes of him painting to a discussion to a scene of him painting to a discussion. It didn't right. felt like there was a cohesive like line that I was following through in the story. But when you get here, it's like now the plot is telling you he's now in an insane asylum because of the way that he treats people. And now we're going into this discussion of why he feels that way. That is very profound and important. And then leading back into him being in this insane asylum and things like that. And I just I like the way that they weave that conversation into what's happening in those more artistic expression scenes. Like it's it's very that is well balanced and that is well transitioned story wise. And so I liked that part of it when he's in the insane asylum and then that conversation and the follow through. It was more like the earlier scenes of him just painting and then talking to Gogan and then painting and then talking to Gogan and then getting angry at Gogan and then painting. And it's like, it doesn't, it just feels a little repetitive and it doesn't feel as well meshed into as the, these later scenes do. Ryan thoughts. You're, you're making a face. <laughs> no, I agree. I'm in total agreement. I think what you said was spot on there um, mm. for towards the end of the film, which I do think is well, like that point about like their repetitiveness as well, I think rings true. Mm-hmm. the first half of the film worked better for me than the second half mm-hmm. despite you know they're having some standout moments like the conversation with the priest but towards the end when it's coming towards like the end of his life he is out there painting and then these two boys come up and he gets robbed but then also gets shot and yeah. then we see the aftermath of that of like his funeral and then his like paintings around him and then people I guess are going up and looking at each of them and like seeing if they want to buy them, which is a very fascinating shot. But I thought that scene was great. 
yeah, that was really interesting. It's people the, appreciating him in his death, which I thought was fantastic. Which, yeah, which of course, yeah, this is a great uh, example of that sad, unfortunate rule, it seems like, for artists, mm. which is after death is when you will get the most recognition. Yeah. Um, I so, love when he yeah. says that. I think it's to the doctor, I think he says. But I can't remember who it was, but he says uh, like... I'm painting for someone, people who aren't born yet. Yes, yes. Uh. He, so, somebody is it that questions him and like, do you think your paintings are like worthwhile? And he says uh, like, no, I just think I was born too soon. I'm painting for people who haven't been born yet. I think it's fantastic. Like that self-awareness that they gave Van Gogh in the film is great. Whereas I don't know if he had that thoughts, those thoughts in real life, but we have those thoughts of Van Gogh and we have that, you know idea of van gogh as being a guy who was not he's the guy who was not appreciated in his time Mm -hmm. he's the go-to figure of that and so like giving him that self-awareness was definitely something i appreciated in the film agreed one of the interesting things about the ending of this film is that it's really based on like a controversial theory about van gogh that Mm -hmm. he he did not commit suicide and instead was shot by these two boys and like they pled with him not to not to say anything and he didn't and he just died um whether whether you believe that is like you know up to you but i find it really interesting how the film kind of like plays into this point of him Mm -hmm. just like not trying to get people in trouble and just trying to you know keep to himself and not really worry about anything else and Mm -hmm. then dying because of it what do you guys Mm -hmm. think about that makes me sad that they steal and then bury his art yeah after they shoot him yeah it but my no you go ahead okay my my impression of it was these people who these kids who did not know anything about painting or did not care about painting like robbed him of his life and then metaphorically his his paintings were then literally in the film buried and hidden away in in the aftermath of his death so recently like they they robbed him of that joy of painting by by taking away his life so i felt like metaphorically it worked but in terms of like trying to make a story that connects as they were trying to do with like series of scenes of dialogue like i just feel like it didn't land quite so well if they had made the whole film like if they made the film kind of like blonde where it was more metaphorical and kind of played to feelings rather than trying to weave an actual story in there. It might've worked better, but they were definitely earlier in the film trying to connect and do like a story of his life and just not quite nailing the balance between the two. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the ending didn't quite work for me just cause and again, if this was like a real part of his life and I guess, mm-hmm. yeah, it just abruptly ended and sometimes it's how things go, but them coming up and doing that, felt so just like out of place and like distanced from what everything was going on before that in terms of the story and again that was going back to my earlier point of like the character arc van gogh at this place in his life like what is the takeaway meant to be like what growth does he go through does he reach a point of peace does he not i felt like this ending where it seems like he doesn't necessarily get that completion mm-hmm. it's just sort of like taken away from him because he's killed and again maybe that's part of like the commentary they want to make about van gogh's life but it felt unsatisfying to see it go out that way and then 
at the very end, they brought up the, like those title cards at the end, the text on screen saying that, yeah, these boys shot him. And then he never brought up that that was what happened. But yeah, going into it, my understanding was Van Gogh killed himself. Like he shot himself. Mm -hmm. And so that's why this ending at first, I was like, oh, so they're just, they're doing their own thing. They're going to pull some like alternate history and I didn't understand why they were making that choice. But now if you're saying, Ross, that it's based on, I guess, this real life alternative mm -hmm. theory for mm -hmm. his death. Yeah. It's fascinating now that they chose to go with that rather than what was like the established quote unquote truth of his death, which was that he had shot himself. So now that does pique my interest more of like them deciding to go with this route. But I still think it leaves some questions about like what was... The direction of his life like was he in a happy place or was he not he was like constantly battling these feelings of not being able to connect of being isolated whatever like mental health issues he had were still with him at that point but it seems again like there was just a lack of completion there because this event happened that just ended his life and so we don't get that classic hollywood narrative completion to his arc so I know I guess it's just part of the part of the reality of adapting a real life person. Things obviously don't end the way that we would hope them to be and how they should go or deserve to go, but it did leave me feeling I don't know, a little unsatisfied at the end, mm, wanting more, I guess. More yeah, wanting more completion. More wanting a completion wanting just a better closure if you will exactly just a better understanding of like where van gogh was at the end basically like how like what is the takeaway that they wanted to offer about van gogh's life and who he was as a person and as an artist and mm -hmm. i just didn't feel that i guess as strongly with this particular ending that they decided to go with yeah um, but ross how do you feel about that like this choice to make it about the shooting from the boys rather than a suicide i feel like it's interesting i feel i feel like it's a definitely like an intentional move to have it be well, of course it's intentional to have it you know shown as the boys did it instead of van gogh when like van gogh like in his like writing wrote in like letters how he thought that suicide was like immoral and like that he that was something that a path that he definitely didn't want to go down um so i find it that interesting just the way that this film focuses on that more than anything else in the very end um i feel like this is definitely a mark that this film is like a french film it was like developed for like a French audience more than the U.S. audience, right? Yeah, uh, which isn't to like excuse you know big bigger issues that you guys are having with it, um, but just it's a lot slower and just kind of leaves you off more on like a a natural look at life versus like a big conclusion to everything. Yeah, and I would I, say that. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um. I think it would be interesting if the ending left you with a little more about like Van Gogh's work post his death and kind of what happened with Van Gogh. And mm -hmm. um, they mentioned in one of the like 
titles on screen that like that sketchbook was discovered later in like 2016 i'd like I personally would have loved to see like a flip through that sketchbook, even in like present day and just to see like, you know, what's come of that. But yeah, Ryan. Yeah, I think that's a great point you bring up. But even the other people that were in his life, so like Gao Gan and Theo, his brother, if they, if we were able to just see more of like their response and reaction to the death that happened, but then also the timeline of whenever he started gaining popularity. Like it seems like in that one scene, like people were now looking at his art more, but like, did it happen right after his death that he became this well-known now, like one of the most recognizable people in history um, where everyone knows Vincent Van Gogh, or at least they have seen a painting of his, like just that idea, especially since the name of the film at eternity's gate, that's like brought up as well at some point it has him go from that idea of oh i'm painting because i want to make other people see my vision of reality and i think that'll make them feel alive he says later in the film that that's no longer his goal it's just to focus on his relationship with eternity Mm -hmm. so i guess maybe that was part of where why i felt it was a little empty at the end was the lack of actually engaging with the aftermath of his death and some of the legacy that came from it since so much of the film did seem to be heading in that direction and was like interested in that idea of Van Gogh, the person that would become well-known, but in his own life was isolated and unliked and unloved. Yeah. Ross, I liked what you said about this film being like a distinctly French film made for friends, French audiences. Cause when I was watching it, the movie that I thought about that I, connected it most to was breathless because mm. i i had yeah. the same problems with breathless that i had with this <laughs> film i i felt like when i watched breathless i mean this was five years ago so maybe i need to watch it again but what i remember about watching breathless was uh feeling like the scenes didn't connect perfectly well because there are jarring cuts in the scenes and it's more about the conversation that it's, it feels more like a memory than it does like an actual story it feels more like cutting and cutting to what can be remembered about the significance of certain days in the, in the aspects of their lives. And then it did also feel like I was left off with a very unsatisfying and incomplete ending at the end of breathless, which was the intention. And so mm-hmm. I feel like this film, I think you're right. It's definitely feels more French than a lot of other films that have come out recently, which may be the point since it's about French people. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love Breathless as well. That's so funny. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like thinking, like connecting it back to Breathless as well. Like I remember watching it and feeling like Breathless is like you start trying to make one movie and you finish with another. Like it's just a completely different beast. And I feel like this one, not in the same level, but you begin with like really focusing on painting and, you know, running around in the wild and showing, you know, watching his feet trample through the grass as he's trying to go fast to find a good spot. Mm-hmm. And then you end with these like really philosophical conversations about why, you know, why this happens. And I, I just love it. I just, I feel like for me, those can, I'm able to gloss over those like kind of holes in the quilt, as you said before, mm-hmm. to put together this picture of the last couple of years of Van Gogh's life in a super like, mm-hmm. I don't want to say like, 
experimental, but like yeah, a different way, you know? Yeah, even with the holes, the quilt still keeps you warm. So true. <laughs> wow, how beautifully put. Thank you. So in wrapping up, are there any other things that you want to mention about the film? Last minute thoughts? I think no, I covered I th- all my bases, yeah. Yeah, I think I think I'm pretty clear on it. Oh, Oscar Isaac kills it. So good in this movie. I love I love him playing Gaokan, Gaokan. Whatever the Very name good. is. Yeah. He's he's Gaokan, great. Gaokan. Yeah. yeah. He's he is great. He's fantastic. Very hot. He's wonderful. Very hot. Oh, the mustache? Crazy. Oh yeah. Wow. You're telling me. Oh man. <laughs> love that guy. Uh, but besides that. I think I covered the basis pretty good. Yeah, I think we do have to mention, despite this wonderful, beautiful conversation about the film and its meaning and its connection to art and life in general, we have to bring up the fact that one of the great memes of all time came of from course. this film. <laughs> Willem Dafoe looking up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sheer shock so and horror and dismay. Perfect. Fantastic. It was just perfect, so perfect. funny going into this film. And I was like, no, this is the one where that meme came from. Who was the yeah. person that was watching at Eternity's Gate and was like, you know what? That's so <laughs> this would funny. be a great meme. Uh, it's got to be in like the trailer or something. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. But what a great shot, hilarious. though. It is uh, a great shot. He's just so at the so bottom scared. of it. Like completely up. <laughs> I'm looking it's at it right now. Great shot. <laughs> so terrible. His like eyes are rolled back and his, his mouth is just like gaped open. Scary. It really is, yeah. But is a great reaction part... meme. <laughs> is that during the part where Gaogan is like, I have to go back, and he like runs out and he like starts screaming. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. The dialogue is playing over. What an intense moment that just makes the, a great meme. The second they came out of the chapel, though, because I was waiting for it. I was like, when are we going to get it? And I was like, oh, this is the one. This yeah. is the one for sure. <laughs> All that blue, man. I yeah. Guess. It's the blue color. Blue blue of it. You're like, this is it. This is it. so funny. (laughs) All right. So, out of how many yellow houses will you give this film? Instead of stars, we like to shake it up, make it specific to the film. So, out of Hmm. how many yellow houses would you give this one? Yeah, out of five. That's you, Ross. How many? Oh, me. You you already know I'm going to say five. That's five for me. I love this film. A full five stars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of your... Top three, right? You said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be kind of shocked. Number one, anything else? <laughs> yeah, could you imagine? It's like uh, four point uh, five. Two like and a half. Top three yeah. film. It's like a two. Yeah. It's all right. No, I, I can look past the flaws. I think it's yeah. perfection. Nice, Dylan. How about you? I'm gonna give it a three. A three out of five. Gotcha. I will give it a three point five. Yellow houses. Through this conversation, it got bumped up. I was really? initially going to give it a three, but <laughs> as we were talking through it, there were some like strokes of brilliance that mm. came through, and I was like, "Yeah, that's great." So, despite yeah some of the things that held it back for Dylan and myself, mm. it is a really fascinating film. So it's worth there's a, watch, a lot sure. to admire. Yeah, a lot mm-hmm. to go in there and just experience it. Uh, but yeah, Ross, I'll give you the last word on at eternity's gate uh if you haven't seen it definitely go check it out it's worth a watch fun little time uh i love willem dafoe 
he can do no wrong by me. I love that guy. So true. Very well put. That is all the time we have. If you'd like to give your thoughts on the show, you can email us at theboxofficeshowpod at gmail.com. Our main title theme for the show is Sundown by Joseph McDade. And if you like the show, please give us five stars on whatever podcast app you're listening to. Thank you so much to Ross for coming out and talking about At Attorney's Gate with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Of course. Make sure to tune in next week. Have a great rest of your day.